Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Summer Lopez, uh, who is the chief program officer for free expression at PEN America. Uh, she joined PEN America in 2017 uh, and previously worked at United States Agency for International Development um, for eight years, um, posted in Zimbabwe, all over the place. Great, great stuff. Uh, and I wanted to I wanted to get you on today uh, to talk about something that it's, it's pretty important to me. Um, it's a little bit outside of the normal wheelhouse of this podcast. It's a little more Hollywood focused, but I think freedom of expression uh, is important to everyone in Hollywood, obviously. Um, and that was uh, the the uh, attack on Salman Rushdie and uh, your guys' response to it, which I think has been has been really great. So j- could you just fill folks in uh, on a, l- a little bit of the background here? I'm sure people know about the fatwa and all that, but, you know, just just set the stage for us. Sure. So. You know, I guess I'll, I'll set the stage a little bit in the context of, of Salman's relationship with PEN America as well. I think yeah. the you know, when the fatwa was uh, was announced, it really it was a moment, you know, for PEN America and for our um, community as well to really respond and stand with Salman. And that was a, a moment that people really, um, you know, took up the, the cause of, of defending him in that at that time, um, you know, of course, when he eventually kind of emerged from, you know, living uh, more quietly uh, for a while, he then became the president of PEN America in 2004. And, you know, he led the organization during sort of the post 9-11 era. He created our PEN World Voices Festival, which is a international literary festival really intended in that moment to ensure that kind of global cultural and literary dialogue and exchange wasn't wasn't lost. Um, and he's remained an absolutely stalwart uh, defender of freedom of expression and of um, and of other writers under threat um, around the world. So he's been an advocate, a supporter and a, and a part of PEN America. He's a, um, you know, a regular figure at our events. Um, and, you know, so, of course, this came as just an absolutely devastating shock, this attack. You know, it's not I don't think any of us had forgotten that the threat still existed. And certainly we work on the cases of a number of writers um, threatened both in Iran and by the Iranian regime around the world. Um, and so it's not, um, it wasn't a complete surprise, of course, that this, this threat was still out there. But of course, you know, Salman also has, has insisted on living his life in a very courageous and defiant way without security around him all the time and, and really, um, you know, uh, shunning that sort of idea that he, he needed to live with that sort of protection, um, you know, in, in a, an effort to be defiant, I think, and to make a point. Um, and so, of course, this was just devastatingly shocking for, for all of us. Um, but it really, I think it has also really been a moment um, that has in so many ways kind of crystallized why we do what we do. His his entire story and life really um, embodies so much of why an organization like PEN America exists, both to defend freedom of expression, but particularly the written word and the, and the, and the freedom of writers to, to do their work. Yeah, when I was um, after the attack, I was you know going through some of my uh, some of my books and 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 looking at some of this stuff. And uh, one thing that I had forgotten about, uh, and Christopher Hitchens talks about in in his memoir, was that after the uh, fatwa was issued in 1989, it was uh, the president of Pan America, Susan Sontag, who was uh, instrumental in organizing support for him um, in the United States, getting him meetings, getting you know. Uh, 
all of that sort of stuff. So the relationship here is is longstanding. I mean, yes. to to the extent that I, I I remember your your CEO after the attack said that just that morning she had been emailing uh, with someone yes. about uh, trying to help writers in Ukraine. Yes, it was very emblematic of the role that he was playing, you know, continuing to support and be constantly concerned for the welfare of other writers under threat around the world. Um, And, you know, of course, what he was about to speak about on the panel was about writers in exile and offering um, safe havens and opportunities for writers to have you know, safe spaces to go to in the United States and to be able to continue to write um, despite the threats that they may have faced in, in other places. So this has remained a very significant focus of, of his um, and, and in partnership with us. And, and I think it, it's because of that relationship that we felt we you know, really needed to do something to demonstrate our, our support and solidarity as well and, um, and to demonstrate that you know, his words wouldn't be silenced and that we would not um, either cower um, in the face of any attempt to intimidate, which is why we organized this reading um, last Friday, stand with Salman on the uh, steps of the New York Public Library um, to have prominent writers reading from his work and from a number of his remarks and speeches over the years and to really um, send a message both to him and more broadly um, in defiance of this, this sort of attempted intimidation and silencing. What was uh, the response like from writers that you reached out to both in uh, in, in Pan America and elsewhere? Like where how, how did folks respond? It's been overwhelming, and and some of it came from the writers themselves. I mean, as soon as I think, as soon as it really became clear that that he would thankfully survive, you know, we were hearing from writers about what they could do, what we could do as pen, um, and we had also begun talking about it too. And it just sort of came together as a very natural um, way to demonstrate, you know, our support and and uh, and to stand with him. Yeah. What what can what can people do now to uh, help support both? Uh, both Rushdie and and you guys at Penn uh, in terms of uh, spreading the word and, and helping helping get the word out. Absolutely. Well, you know, I think the the advice to read his books has been really important. I think that is you know such a great important thing for people to do. I hope this you know if there's any sort of silver lining of something so horrific as this, I hope one that will be that people might be reintroduced to his his works who might not have have read them in the past. Um, you know, and I think. Obviously, this is happening against the backdrop of, of a sort of proliferation of book bans that we've seen across the country. And so I've heard a lot of people say, you know, um, read his books, read other banned books. Of course, you know, we want to say that, too. There's there's books that are very prominent. There are authors that are well known who are being banned and silenced. There are many lesser known books out there um, and, and authors out there whose whose works are, are being um, repressed in different ways in this country as well. And so you know, we have um, done a report on book bans around the country called Banned in the USA that we put out a little earlier this year. We're going to be doing an update to that shortly. I hope people will take a look at that and, um, you know, get a sense of, of kind of what's happening in the U.S. more broadly right now and, and learn a bit about that and what they can do to push back against those efforts. Um, of course, if you want to become a pe- member of PEN America, we'd love to have you as well. Um, you can, if you're a supporter of freedom of expression and, and reading, um, you can join join PEN America and be be part of our work too. Uh, for the record, I am a member of PEN America. I, I use that as <laughs> as leverage to get you on this show today. So, uh, the, which, but but I but I uh, I strong supporter of PEN America. Um, I I joined uh, in the aftermath of the. Uh, the Charlie Hebdo attack, mm-hmm. uh, which was uh, another, you know, fairly vicious assault on freedom yes. of expression. Um, and there was some drama internally. I don't really want to get into all that again. But uh, the the 
the organization is great. I'll put a link to it in the email. Sign up um, if you were if if folks folks are interested in defending freedom of expression. Pen America, great organization. Let's talk about the book bans. So let's talk let's talk about Banded America. Um, what is what is happening uh, on that front in the United States? Yeah, I mean, what's happening is really an unprecedented. Um, assault on on what we are calling the freedom to read in schools and libraries across the United States. And, you know, book bans are something that PEN America has worked on for decades. Generally, we see eh, two to three cases a year, you know, where some books get pulled off a shelf or out of classroom um, or banned in a in a school district somewhere. Typically, you know, if we write a letter, we raise a little bit of a fuss. Um, the decision might be reversed. Nobody likes to be called a book banner. Um, and, and that's kind of usually it. What we've seen over the past year is completely different. Um, we tracked, um, we looked at um, from starting in July of 2021 to the end of March of this year, we tracked over 1,500 book bans occurring in 86 school districts in 26 states. Um, and we've unfortunately... It has not slowed down since then. Um, and we're really seeing attempts to target books, particularly by or about uh, people of color and LGBTQ folks. So it is it feels very directed at particular stories and identities. Um, also books about issues of race, gender, American history. Um, you know, this is also connected to some of the legislation we've seen. Um, that we've called educational gag orders, uh, barring discussion of certain issues and topics in classrooms uh, and, and both at the university and K-12 level. Um, so it's really, it's sort of a broader, um, very alarming assault that I'd say we're seeing around the country right now. Yeah. Can you uh, tell us some of the specific uh, books that have been, have fallen under these, these bans? Yeah. So one of the ones that, um, you know, we there's a, a book called Gender Queer by author Maya Kubabe. That is one that has come up a lot. There's All Boys Aren't Blue. Um, there are a number. There's, you know, of course, some of the um, uh, the uh, children's uh, book versions of some of Ibram Kendi's work. There's a, a range of issues of, of books, again, that we have seen kind of come up over and over and over again in these tags. And so what we often see is that people are often um, sharing lists of books to essentially complain about to their school districts. Um, pulling, you know, there's a, a organization that has a sort of recommended list of books of concern on their website. Um, and so we often see people, you know, just kind of taking these lists directly to the school district and, and asking that these books be removed you know, without necessarily having read them, without necessarily having any you know, knowledge of how those books might be being taught or utilized in the schools. Um, but that's that's something that we're seeing quite a bit of as well. Uh, and let's talk about the educational gag orders a bit too, because it's a. I, I know it's it's a it's a very controversial topic. Uh, one of my one of my colleagues here at the Bulwark, Sarah Longwell, wrote uh, wrote about this in the Washington Post. The um, the fear that such a uh, such a gag order would prevent her. Uh, children from talking about her relationship in the classroom. You know, she she uh, has two moms, her her daughter, and like that. You know, that would be that could is the sort of thing that could fall under one of these one of these rules. So, what what is happening there, and what what are uh, what are you guys doing to kind of push back against them? Yeah. So, what we've seen, and we just put out a new report on this uh, this week uh, called America Censored Classrooms. 
We tracked in the last, in this past year's legislative session, 137 bills introduced um, that qualify as educational gag orders. Um, that's a huge increase from what we saw um, the previous year. Um, and, you know, this is, these are primarily bills that would restrict discussion of, in often cases, sort of divisive concepts. And again, they're all, almost always very vague and broad in terms of what they um, consider to be off limits. And so our real, you know, the concern is both that that schools and, and teachers may be held liable in certain ways for the things that they want to talk about and, and teach about in the classroom, but the broader chilling effect is also the real concern, right? That nobody has a good sense of how they, you know, what would exactly kind of um, violate these laws. And so there, you know, we are hearing examples of teachers having shied away from, you know, answering questions about um, about things like slavery and the genocide of the Native Americans mm-hmm. and and really being uh, very circumspect about the things that they will touch on. And, and you know, I think that uh, the concern expressed is, is a very real one. Um, so the, the impact of this, uh, I think we're already starting to see, even though, you know, certainly not a, a much smaller number of these have actually passed. But the, the sort of chilling effect even of, intru- of introducing this type of legislation can be very significant. Uh, has any of this filtered down to textbooks, you know, changing textbooks and, and what is actually taught in the classrooms? Or uh, is it more just kind of what is being discussed by the teachers? So I'm not sure we've had really the time to see that kind of level of impact. Obviously, textbooks tend to be a little uh, behind anyway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Only every so often the states revise those. But we have, you know, we have obviously seen um, debates around what should be in state level curriculum connected to these conversations. And there was just a survey released um, by RAND that stated that um, one in four teachers said they had been told by school or district leaders to limit their classroom conversations about certain political, about political and social issues generally. Um, And some of those were also in cases where they have an official restriction of gag order in place. Um, And so, you know, really feeling like there are policies that are putting that kind of pressure on them and that the, the, you know, the districts and the leaders within those districts are also feeling a tremendous amount of pressure. and, And that is trickling down to teachers in the classroom too. Yeah, uh, I, I saw. I don't. I don't know if you if you saw this, but the uh, the Penn uh, social media team uh, tweeted out a story about the Scholastic Book Fair uh, in a, a nearby town to me. I live in Dallas, Texas. Uh, oh Grapevine, yes. Grapevine's not too far away. Um, uh, I think I don't, I'm still not great with the geography. <laughs> but uh, but the uh, a Scholastic Book Fair uh, basically was like, well, we we can't come because we won't give the school district, a list of all of the books that we're going to be selling there. We can't, you know, figure out, we don't want to divide, you know, by age groups and all that. Um, is, is, are we seeing that sort of thing happen around the country or is that, you know, uh, kind of infrequent? This so far seems to be a little bit of a new thing, but we are concerned about it and the possibility that we could see more of it. You know, all of these things kind of started out as one case where we thought, wow, that, that seems way beyond the line. That's not probably going to happen in a lot of different places. And then it actually, it absolutely has. And so this is, this is also one that we're definitely watching for that reason, you know, and I think it's, it's just indicative of sort of this broader culture suddenly where the sense is that all of these books might be dangerous and, Mm -hmm. you know, we have to review them and, and make sure that nothing dangerous is getting through. You know, I think we've, I mean, I remember going to scholastic book fairs when I was little. I don't think sure. any of that was happening at the time. Um, sure. And so, you know, it's 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 really I think it's it's just alarming in terms of the kind of broader um, shift that we've seen in this sort of sense that, um, you know, that if any parent 
disapproves of a book that is being made available to students, that that they have the right to ban access to that for all students. And that, you know, that's completely contrary to the concept of freedom of expression and to, and to students' rights to access a wide range of stories and and uh, and ideas. And that's, you know, kind of what access to, to books and literature is supposed to be about in, in schools in particular. Yeah. Um, so uh, to uh, to play devil's advocate, uh, you know, in the in in the report about educational gag orders, you mentioned, look, this is it's a it's a it's a fraught topic. It's a controversial topic. Parents are obviously uh, very mindful of what their kids, you know, experience, especially younger kids, you know, in high schools, there's, you can maybe have a broader range, elementary schools, it's a little trickier. Um, how do you balance the concern of parents with, uh, the, the concerns of, about freedom of expression and, and the ability of children to access, I mean, children, I, we say children, I mean, teenagers, you know, right. kids in, Kids in honors English, you know, 11 or whatever, AP, AP comp or literature, right? Like, it's not like we're just talking about seven-year-olds here. Um, right. We're we're talking about a, a wide spectrum of, of ages here. How do you balance that concern uh, between parents and, and what kids should have access to? Yeah, absolutely. I don't think, you know, nobody wants to dismiss the legitimate concerns of parents and, and, and their legitimate right to have some say in, you know, in their children's education. Um but I think, you know, anybody I think who has had any role in a school knows that if a parent comes in and says, I really don't want my kid to read this book, or I'd really like to figure out some alternative to this lesson for my child, that's almost always going to be possible, right? Um, so I think there's always a solution for a parent's child in general, in specifically. Um, I think, you know, as I said, the issue is really when that parent wants their sense of what's right for their child to apply to everybody else's child as well. And that, you know, I think what we're seeing a lot right now is a lot of talk about parents' rights, but it's it's really specific parents' rights to kind of make decisions that impact everybody. So, you know, what about the gay parents who would like their child to be able to read a book about the family that looks like theirs? Um, you know, I think that that is, the, it's a, it's a, um, it's not the right solution to, what maybe you know concerns the parents may have, um, and so you know I think that that's that's the approach that we um, think needs to be taken. And and you know in most of these cases as well, schools and libraries have procedures in place, right, for reviewing if they get uh, a challenge about a book, a complaint, a concern expressed by parents. They usually have policies and procedures in place to deal with that. And what we're seeing in the vast majority of these cases is that those are just not being followed at all. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you're having a principal or a superintendent come in and say, these books were challenged. We're taking all of them off the shelf. You know, this is what also happened in Texas recently, where um, a list of books was challenged over the course of last year. They reviewed them. Two different committees reviewed them. They decided to keep the books. And then right before school started this year, the authorities came in and said, nope, we're pulling all of these books. Um, that's how they ended up banning the Bible, um, because it had been challenged. Challenge, I believe, on that one had been withdrawn. Um, but everything that had been challenged ended up getting pulled anyway, with complete disregard for the actual process. Yeah, uh, irony there. That's yes. that is what we call <laughs> irony. Um, I, it, it's funny. I was I was looking back through uh, Suzanne's book, uh, Dare to Speak. Um, uh, Suzanne Nossel, the CEO of yes. Pen America, I was looking back through her book, Dare to Speak, uh, this week, uh, and was it, it's it's interesting to read. Uh, I mean, this it was published two years ago. It's interesting to read with two more years of 
all of the arguments over freedom of speech and expression that we've been having uh, in the country. But there's something that you mentioned in that in that last answer that I think is very key to kind of understanding the the uh, balance of the debate right now, which is the the argument that some things need to be taken out of circulation entirely um, and uh, people there, there are certain works that people need to be stopped from reading um, or television shows that people need to stop from watching movies that need, people need to be stopped from seeing and other people who are, you know, just critical of those things. And where, how do you, how do you find that balance of criticism versus de facto ban? Yeah. I mean, I think of course, Criticism is always okay, right? I mean, the whole point is to be able to, you know, consume a wide range of things, to debate them, to, to think about them, to have those those conversations. But we can't have those conversations if we can't even access whatever the thing is, right? And I think, you know, there's there's a sort of an assumption, I think, that if you if you read a book, it's it's an endorsement of the book or it's it's inevitable that you're going to agree with the book. But you know, people read a wide range of things that they disagree with. And that, too, is very instructive, right? I think it's important to know, you know, the arguments that you disagree with so that you can more effectively dismantle them, you know, if that's if that's your goal. Um, you know, I think that we don't and, and from a kind of, you know, access to information and and uh, historical honesty perspective, you know, there's a real danger to saying these books, you know, we don't want to read these books anymore. People shouldn't have access to these books anymore because, you know, potentially then you're essentially erasing um, some aspect of, of history or of our kind of cultural conversation that are important for people to understand and, and know something about. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean it's an endorsement of those books or the ideas in them. I mean, lots of you know, bookstores carry Mein Kampf and there's a reason, you know, that we think that might be an important thing for, for people to know exists and to, to understand the history of. Um, and so, you know, I think there's that, but that none of that should necessarily close down any space for debate or, or disagreement or criticism. Um, that's, you know, that's part of the idea <laughs> is to, yeah. to have the room for that. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to find that balance between, you know, the, Look, obviously, nobody's going. No, no uh, individual work will be liked by everybody or approved of right. by everybody. But you know, having access to that thing is still important. Let's let's um let's go around the world a little bit. If that's can we sure. do, can we just do a hop around the world? Mm-hmm. So what what is happening in the from your from your perspective at Penn? You know, where are some of the uh, freedom of expression? Uh, hot spots right now that that you know we're we're finding trouble with. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I mean, one of the other things that we do is uh, track the number of writers and public intellectuals imprisoned around the world every year. Um, and so, you know, we have um, been doing that for the past three years now. We've seen, unfortunately, an increase during that time. Um, last year, we counted two hundred and seventy-seven um, folks imprisoned around the world. Um, the previous year, I believe it was, or two years prior, I believe it was 238. Um, so a bit of an increase. Um, some of that, you know, I think not disconnected from the pandemic and some countries using, um, COVID as an excuse to crack down on dissent. Um, and you know, the, the top countries, you know, some of them not surprising, China, Saudi Arabia, Iran, um, 
we have, you know, in the past year been very concerned about the situation in Myanmar since the coup there um, in, uh, in the early 2021. Um, we've seen a significant, you know, reversal of the situation there. We've seen a lot of writers and artists imprisoned. Um, earlier this month, there were um, four democracy activists executed uh, in Myanmar, um, two of whom, uh, one of whom was a, a writer and one of whom was a, a hip hop artist. Um, and this, you know, this is something we haven't really seen um, much of anywhere, honestly, in a while. Except I think there was a journalist executed in Iran recently as well. But that's that's quite, um, you know, uh, chilling. Um, and and so I think the other concern that we have, you know, so I think we're we obviously see sort of things worsening in in places that you wouldn't be surprised or bad, like China mm-hmm. and Russia. Um, but we also have seen real reversal, reversals in places like Myanmar, obviously Afghanistan, um, and and a number of other places that had you know been on a better track at one point at least. Um, India has also been a, a, a heightened concern for us recently too. I, I, let me I, Saudi. Um... I've got three countries here that I want to, but I, I, I have seen the headlines and I haven't actually dug into this at all, but I saw the, the, the story about the, um, Saudi Arabian, uh, woman who, uh, was visiting back home from college and sentenced to 34 years yes. in prison, something like that. What, yes. what, what happened there? It was basically for her tweets. Um, and that included the fact that she had tweeted in support of some, uh, women's rights activists who had been pr- imprisoned previously. And one of whom, Lujain Al-Hafoul was somebody we, um, honored with our Freedom to Write Award a few years ago, alongside two other um, Saudi women uh, writers and activists. Um, and, you know, so, I mean, this was a pretty, just an absolutely horrifying um, case, uh, this most recent one. And it really demonstrates that, you know, Mohammed bin Salman, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, would very much like to have this uh, global image of himself as a reformer and a forward thinker. Um, he is quite the opposite. Um, you know, obviously we're, you know, I think the the entire international community, the human rights community, was deeply concerned on many levels about the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. One of them being that if you know they kind of got away with that, you know they would be emboldened and empowered to feel that they could essentially get away with anything. And I think you know, unfortunately, that's a little bit of where we're at. And they've found ways of um, you know whitewashing some of these things. So Lou Jane Al Hathul, for example, is an activist who was released a couple of years ago. Um, but she's been under a travel ban. She's restricted in um, her communications or in her ability to work. You know, they kind of um, create these de facto prisons without bars for people um, who are released. Um, and so, you know, this is basically what we've seen is is no real change in the situation in Saudi Arabia. Maybe things are, um, you know, getting even even a little bit more alarming at the moment. Uh, the the next country was Afghanistan, which I you know I, I follow the the world of film a little more closely, and I I know that uh, uh, people were terrified of what would happen to the Af- Afghan film industry, which had been growing a little bit, you know, uh, had 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 found some room to blossom, and obviously does not really have that space anymore. Um, right. Have you guys heard much about what's what's coming out of Afghanistan? I mean, a lot of the focus obviously has been on, you know, people who have continued to try to leave the country. Um, you know, the response, the situation last year when when Kabul fell and, and the U.S. Uh, presence 
uh, ended was was really devastating. You know, I think the situation um, was obviously um, dire and has you know continued to be so. And you know, a lot of people have left. I think there has been a lot of focus on trying to support Afghan artists, writers, journalists, others who are now outside the country. Um, you know, I know that people are still trying to do what they can in in Afghanistan as well. But the situation is obviously just extremely challenging and, and the threats are from the Taliban are, are very serious. So, um, you know, it's, it's a, definitely one where we are very concerned. It doesn't really show up in our freedom to write index because the situation has not been one where people are being imprisoned necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a number of writers killed, uh, last year and people targeted. Um, but that's, it's a, I think at the moment what we're seeing is, is primarily kind of intimidation and, and silencing, mm-hmm. um, in different forms. Uh, and India was the other the other nation that I was kind of surprised to see on the. I mean, I, I don't follow Indian politics particularly closely, um, but the the sense that you know, I I think I and a lot of other people have is that it's more of a modernizing, westernizing uh, location. But uh, obviously, that may be mistaken. Well, there's definitely been a reversal in terms of democracy and human rights under under the Modi government, um, and we have you know been been seeing that kind of happen over the past over recent years. Um, there have been you know cases of writers targeted. There have been a lot of journalists targeted by the government, um, and we um, just also just last week actually um, put out a um, compilation of writings by over 110 uh, Indian writers from India and from the Indian diaspora called India at 75, marking the 75th anniversary of the country's independence and have reflecting on the state of India today. And, you know, those were quite sobering. Um, you know, most of, most of these folks were reflecting on, on the promise of, of Indian independence and of so much of India's history in terms of, in terms of democracy um, and, and the state of where things are right now, which is, you know, a lot of um, sectarian violence being stoked and, and uh, shutting down of space for for freedom of expression and and dissent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's I, that I, I I this is why I asked because I saw it on site. Very it was it was interesting. I was kind of again surprised uh, surprised by that. Um, one last thing I, I I just wanted to to ask you about again. It's it's been it's interesting to look back at Dare to Speak now. Again, we've we've had another couple of years of of debates over uh, freedom of expression, First Amendment, and all that. And one of the things that comes up in the book is the uh, the rights and the responsibilities of corporations to kind of safeguard free speech. I mean, obviously, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, et cetera. Like, these are, these are areas where there is not necessarily a legal First Amendment uh, right. obligation to protect freedom of expression. And indeed, they may have obligations to crack down on misinformation or, you know, disinformation, things like that. Uh, how how have you guys seen that kind of play out over the last couple of years here? And what do you think the state of freedom of expression online is at the moment? Big question. question. Big yeah, question exactly. to end. <laughs> and it's such a complicated question. I mean, you know, you're right. Obviously, these are not these are private companies not bound by the First Amendment. Um, they have the right to sort of create the communities that they want to create online. Um, but they are also in some ways are kind of de facto public squares and they are places that are important for public discourse, for writers and artists to create and promote their work. Um, they are spaces of creativity and, and of global dialogue and, and exchange. You know, I think um, 
it, it can be easy to forget some of the things that these platforms offer to us and the ability that they um, give people who live in countries where they where they're the only place where, where freedom of expression can can uh, exist. Um, and but obviously there are very serious concerns and you know the spread of disinformation. We do a lot of work on disinformation. We also do a lot of work on online abuse and its impact on writers and journalists as a threat to freedom of expression because we know that it silences people, that it drives people off of the platforms, can drive people out of um, out of their fields altogether in some cases. And it's it's really um, a very alarming. Uh, concern. And so, you know, part of what we have always tried to do is think about what are some of the solutions to these problems that don't themselves infringe on freedom of expression. And just asking the platforms to kind of take down more stuff is generally not the best solution, in part because they're not always very good at it, right? (laughs) They um, don't necessarily succeed in distinguishing correctly between actual disinformation and satire or art or, you know, people just expressing themselves freely. And, you know, so I think we have tried to to figure out um, what are some of the ways that that we can make the internet a more uh, open and equitably accessible space for people. And, you know, we um, put out a big report last year that was looking at kind of technical solutions, technical steps the platforms could take to better protect people from online abuse um, that wouldn't infringe on freedom of expression, pretty tech- basic things that they could do. Um, you know, I think we have seen some progress on that from some of them. Um, but it's 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 tricky because I think, you know, in the same way that we don't want to ask government to, to kind of um, do significantly more to regulate speech online because of the many dangers associated with handing them that power, we feel somewhat the same about the major tech companies as well, right? Because of the power uh, and the scope of power that they have over over public speech. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, that was everything I wanted to ask, uh, Summer. If I, I always like to close these interviews by asking if there's anything I should have asked. If you think there's anything folks should know about uh, Summer Rushdie, state of freedom of expression, whatever. Uh, anything, anything you think folks uh, should know about? I mean, I think I'd just say, I, you know, I think that the... The attack on Salman Rushdie has been for us, I think, a moment of really crystallizing why it is that we do the work that we do and why it is essential to protect freedom of expression um, for all uh, and and why it's important to protect the right even to offend because you never know who's going, who you're going to offend and you don't really want to decide, you know, who's going to decide who, what is offensive and, and what is the appropriate response. This is, you know, I think this is a real a uh, moment to think about um, why free speech matters and why it's essential that we protect it for all of us. Because if it's threatened for any of us, you know, none of us really get to enjoy that right. And I think that Salman has really embodied that um, through his work and his his advocacy throughout his life. Um, and so I think it's it's been a, a moment in which we all at PEN America, I think, have felt very kind of mobilized and and inspired to remember why we why we do this work and, and hope that that others will join us in that. Uh, co-sign that. Everybody should go sign up for uh, a membership at PEN America. Um, I am a member, so listen listen to me, Excellent. your humble podcaster. <laughs> do, do what I tell you to do. Uh, all right. Uh, thank you very much for being on the show, Summer. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me, Sonny. Um, uh, my name is Sonny Bunch. I am the culture editor at The Bulwark, and I will be back next week with another episode of The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. See you guys then. Mm-hmm.